Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James and today I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest. Um, Welcome to the show, Nick. Thank you. Delighted to be with you. So my name is Nick Pollard. I'm a former research psychologist who became a social entrepreneur. I am co-author of the um, Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders and uh, co-producer of the e-learning based upon that. I'm married to a very patient wife who gave up chemistry teaching to come and work with me, and we've worked together for 44 years. Our daughter, Lizzie, is a GP, um, but uh, when she was a teenager, she was severely ill with uh, an eating disorder, anorexia nervosa, and uh, had an emergency admission to hospital, refeeding program. And in many ways, we look back at it and think that really did save her life because she deteriorated so fast. Um, As you'll see when we talk about it, James, it's one of the issues about eating disorders. They can kind of slowly go down and then rapidly deteriorate she then had six months in an inpatient unit and she will always say that she's forever thankful for the health professionals who helped her but what particularly helped was the family-based self-help what we did as a family to support her and her journey out of the eating disorder. Uh, it was the very early days of what's now become known the, as the uh, New Maudsley Method for Skills-Based Caring, based uh, developed at King's College London and South London and Maudsley NHS. It's now published, but it was the very early days. But because of my background in psychology, I could pick up things and we were able to help her. Basically, evidence-based self-help uh, approaches that were would normally be kind of supervised and monitored and supported by a clinician, um, but there aren't enough clinicians, as you know, which is why there are physician associates so many now, uh, but instead supported by the family, parents, carers, friends, other family members. Um, and so she achieved recovery, got to medical school, qualified as a doctor, and her experience as a GP is that every day, um, mum, dad will bring in a son or daughter saying, look, they're developing anxiety, depression, OCD, self-harm, or an eating disorder. Uh, what can you do, doctor? And the reality is, of course, that you, um, you know, if, if you refer them to secondary services, they've got a long wait. But there's a lot that parents can do right away if they're given the knowledge and skills and tools so together we founded a social enterprise called family mental wealth uh, which provides those digital tools for families but of course there are other touch points uh, for young people and um, one of those is clinicians and there's a big job to do to actually help all health professionals and allied health professionals to understand mental health and see what they can do in their day-to-day clinical work. Um, so Oxford University Press asked us to put a team together to write the Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders. And then we, working together with South London and Maudsley NHS, have created this e-learning in five-minute bite-sized video-based chunks. It, the, the total e-learning is three and a half hours, but, um, you know, Typically, people don't have time to sit down for three and a half hours and watch videos, and read downloads and things. Um, but having it in five-minute chunks means you can 
you know, do it as uh, dip in and out as appropriate. And then crucially, because once you've uh, registered for the e-learning, you've got it for life. So you can keep going back and think, oh, what, what was that about ARFID or what was that about um, uh, medical emergencies and eating disorders or what was that about um, the uh, uh, the legal and the uh, um, compliance issues and confidentiality issues? It's all there in the e-learning. Fantastic. Thank you, Nick. I was bowled over when the guys from Oxford University Press would have reached out to me and said, would you like to feature this topic as a episode on the PA podcast? And I thought, yes, absolutely, I would. I think as PAs, we don't get a lot of exposure or teaching in our clinical education around eating disorders. There may be a lecture on anorexia and bulimia, uh, maybe mm-hmm. for an hour for for most people. I have come across a few PAs who are now specialising and working in eating disorders. So I think they are beginning to filter through into that part of the workforce but oh that's good to know yeah that there are many different types of eating disorders and people you know people will know about anorexia and bulimia although typically people don't understand them typically people know that anorexia is dangerous you know it has the highest mortality rate of any mental health condition but they don't realize that bulimia is also dangerous and people can rapidly uh, have a cardiac arrhythmia and, and die from the uh, imbalance in the electrolytes uh, due to uh, uh, purging. Um, but then they don't know about other ones like binge eating disorder or ARFID or some of the emerging eating disorder diagnoses like orthorexia or uh, TIDE, as it's called, type 1 diabetes with disordered eating, um, which can be very dangerous. Um, so being able to understand those and identify them and know how what you can do practically in your own clinical work yeah there are a few cases that come into my mind of some quite brave public figures celebrities for want of a better phrase that have spoken up and and discussed their eating disorders in publications and on the telly and i'm thinking of nikki graham the the big brother contestant who unfortunately died a few years ago Uh, john prescott one of the labor mps i think didn't he yeah i think he's talked about it yeah and people are surprised by that, an older person, because people think, oh, you know, eating disorders, um, it, there used to be this acronym, uh, SWAG, skinny, white, affluent girls. Oh, that's who gets eating disorders, skinny, white, affluent girls. And that's simply not the case. It can affect people of all ages, uh, all backgrounds, all uh, ethnic groups. Um, uh, and, and so much of it goes hidden because they are very secretive illnesses people and and that's an issue for you know all sorts of clinicians I, you know i um i'm speaking at therapy expo uh in a couple of months time which is the big exhibition at the um uh national exhibition center in, in birmingham and i'm doing a keynote uh for them there and there will be all sorts of therapists sports therapists massage therapists physiotherapists and you might think well what do they need to know about eating disorders but actually they will often be the first person who if they've got the knowledge would be able to identify that there is something going on with with this person to be able to spot the early signs or even the later signs uh, of an eating disorder and and to help the person to open up 
because I say they are very secretive um, for different reasons, for the different eating disorders. For anorexia is sometimes called and uh, uh, recognized as being an egosyntonic illness. So, so there are all sorts of egosyntonic illnesses. That means that they're illnesses that have perceived value to the individual. So, someone with anorexia might might perceive that actually, you know, it, it, I've got control. There's these rules. If I follow these rules, everything will be okay. And perhaps they haven't got control in other parts of their life for all sorts of uh, reasons. And they might start trying to control food, but of course it it controls them. Uh, it soon takes over and controls them. So, so they don't want to actually uh, admit to it because they want to keep it secret. The, the way that Lizzie describes it is some um, anorexia is is like having the worst bully from the play playground living in your head but paradoxically believing that that bully is your friend your only friend and so even severely ill people will find all sorts of ways to um avoid other people knowing um and and even things you know this might be a thing that you'd come across as as pas you know when people are being weighed uh, they will use all sorts of strategies to um, to hide the weight loss, water loading, drinking massive amounts. I mean, liters and liters of water uh, before a, a weigh-in. Um, having heavy weights in their clothing, um, and there are simple things that one could do. Of you know, um, should we just take your coat off before we weigh you? Let's weigh you in the same light clothing ev- every time, and then get a more accurate uh, figure they're not being nasty but actually in their psychopathology the way in which they think they don't want their friend anorexia to be exposed and then with bulimia nervosa on the other hand uh, the the secrecy might be because of sh- of shame um thinking that i don't want people to know that i'm uh, I'm 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 purging, you know, vomiting or using laxatives or diuretics, or other medication, and with binge eating disorder, which is, is you know only been really recognised in the last few decades, um, uh, where people have a overwhelming compulsion to binge, uh, but they don't then purge, uh, and that has devastating effects on them physically and psychologically because they feel a great deal of of shame and even disgust at their behavior and they don't want to own up to it to other people so um there's a big job to do when people first begin to disclose to help them to see you're doing the right thing just disclosing it is the first step on a recovery journey and to affirm them and encourage them that's probably worth us saying that we're not breaking any body's confidence in discussing uh, when you say lizzie your daughter she's i assume open and, and talks about this. oh yes she's written uh, an autobiography that tells her story it's called life hurts uh, a doctor's personal journey through anorexia so you just look it up online life hurts a doctor per- doctor's personal journey through anorexia um by Dr. Elizabeth McNaught. Um, she has a different surname from me because she got married, decided she didn't want my surname anymore. Um, uh, but she also is co-author of the Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders and co-presenter of the e-learning. She co-presents it with Professor uh, Janet Treasure. And um, Professor Janet Treasure is a 
a world-renowned authority on the subject with a lifetime's experience in specialist care. And Lizzie, of course, is a, is a regular GP, but with lived experience. So she talks quite a lot in the e-learning about her own lived experience. Thank you, Nick. So, as you said, it's not just that stereotype of it affecting young people and young girls in particular. Eating disorders can affect people of all ages, all backgrounds, as you were saying. What other sort of conditions and, and signs are there out there to be aware of? Well, yes, I mean, you're definitely right that that it can affect all sorts of people in different ways. And people, sometimes it goes undetected because, for instance, if you take a, a fit, uh, an apparently fit, healthy, muscle-building uh, guy, uh, not wanting to be sexist because you can have fit, healthy, muscle-building women as well, but particularly with guys, it would be considered, oh, well, they're just into their fitness. You know, that's what they do. But it might be that the obsessive, uh, uh, excessive uh, obsessional exercise is actually part of the beginning of uh, uh, anorexia. And then all sorts of marginalized groups, people who 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 feel rejected, finding it hard uh, within society. So, you know, the LGBTQA um, uh, communities um uh, and I'm deliberately saying communities because it's not one community, it's multiple different communities. But people who feel marginalized and rejected can begin to experience what, what's called emotional eating, where I will eat to deal with my emotions. So eating um, uh, superfluous, uh, usually unhealthy food um to deal with uh, uh, a low mood or heightened anxiety. And that emotional eating is a risk factor then for developing binge eating disorder, where people will uh, eat excessive amounts uh, of food uh, secretly and, and feeling very uh, ashamed of that. So all of those kind of, there are different risk factors in different uh, types of person, but uh, but an eating disorder can affect um, everybody. And and so you're saying about the signs to look out for. It'd be good to play a clip from the e-learning. So the e-learning is in uh, short videos, um, but we've got a little clip now. You'll just hear the audio of it. Uh, a little clip where where uh, Lizzie, my daughter, and Professor Janet Treasure talk about how we might take a history in a clinical situation uh, and what sort of signs to look out for in a conversation. Um, and they begin really talking about, you know, there's, there's no, um, the, there's no perfect screening tool. There's no, you know, it's not just, Oh, I'll take a simple blood test. And, uh, and now when it comes back from the lab, we'll know it's, they're much, much more complex than that. So this clip from the e-learning, um, will help you to kind of think about how to take a history. Getting a collateral history from family and friends is very important. The individual themselves might not be able to report key symptoms because they are not aware of them or because they choose to keep them secret. Simply asking the patient to describe the symptoms will often not reveal the issue at all. So if you say, what's your problem? Uh, the characteristic answer of people with anorexia is nothing, I'm perfectly well. With other types of eating disorders, the shame associated with it 
might lead them to only tell part of the story, such as saying that they've been vomiting, but not disclosing why. To say that the vomiting is self-induced, they might present with vomiting, but not indicate uh, what it's caused by. So, when taking a history and examining a patient, we need to take a broad approach. There's a range of diverse ways that this can impact on people, so we need to be aware of that and go through the different systems, the, the biological systems and the psychological and the social factors and sort of almost go through with a sort of checklist but in a gentle way have you noticed any of these and so patients might not volunteer them but when they're, it's, they're allowed to open up they will say oh yes I have got this. In the Oxford Specialist Handbook on Eating Disorders we describe in detail an A, B, C, D, E approach, which can be helpful in taking a history, provided we use it as a broad guide for a conversation. A, absence. Are they absenting themselves from food-related activities, perhaps avoiding situations where they're expected to eat with other people, or going straight to the toilet after meals, or perhaps eating secretly on their own? B, body. Are they obsessively worrying about the size or shape of their body, more than the general body dissatisfaction that many people experience? C. Control. Are they compulsively trying to be in control of food, perhaps seeking to determine the content and timing of meals, or pretending to have eaten what they've actually given or thrown away? Or are they out of control of food, perhaps experiencing an overwhelming desire to binge, maybe secretly on their own. D. Diet. Have they radically changed their diet, perhaps claiming not to like food which they previously enjoyed, or adopting restrictive food preferences, or developing a preference for food which is easy to purge? E. Exercise. Are they exercising excessively or obsessively? For me, when I developed anorexia as a teenager, one of the first signs was running every morning until I was completely exhausted. Brilliant. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for providing that clip. I've listened to it a few times now and I've actually found it really useful for my own learning. And I'm sure it's a marker of the quality of, of the rest of the learning package that you've brought through. It's, it's going to be really good. How can people go about accessing this e-learning module? Very straightforward. Just go to Family Mental Wealth. That's wealth, not health. Uh, it's a play on words of health and well-being. FamilyMentalWealth.com and then click on the link, uh, the graphic there for uh, e-learning for health professionals. And that will take you straight into the uh, e-learning. And the first part of it is completely free. Just sign up, get it completely free. Uh, and then if you want to take the rest of it there's a fee to pay but i'm hoping you could get that on your cpd training budget um or a group of you um can uh, uh have a discount we've got all sorts of discount packages that we can do fantastic thank you i'll leave a link in the show notes for this episode as well yeah. so that people can go straight to the website finding it on their device there Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Nick. I think the e-learning sounds really exciting and is, is an amazing resource for physician associates to check out. 
as we've got you on the podcast today, do you mind sort of sharing a bit of your experience, a bit of your story as as a dad to a daughter with an eating disorder? What is that like for your you and your family? Yes, James, I'm very happy to share that because it can be very helpful to actually hear personal stories. In, in the e-learning, uh, there are lots of animated case stories drawn from uh, real life, but anonymized, and it, you kind of get understand it. So, so from a parent's perspective, it was extremely hard. It kind of creeps up on somebody an eating disorder, and then gathers pace, and the feeling that you have of of impotence. The feeling that you have of what can I do to save my daughter, and and so even you know for me with my background in psychology, or perhaps particularly because you feel that you've really failed, then don't you? Um, but you know you you think what what can I do? And um, one of the issues I I think is there's a lack of understanding about what what mental ill health is really. Uh, about and how we can address it because we've done a lot to talk about parity of ex- a parity of esteem that actually mental ill health is as important as physical ill health and it certainly is but that doesn't mean it's identical because in many cases with physical ill health certainly the expectation of the parent is I hand them over to a clinician to fix them. So if my son developed a lot of uh, extreme pain in his abdomen, I'd take him to the hospital and the doctors say, he's got appendicitis, we need to take his appendix out now. I won't say to the doctor, oh, well, let me come in and I'll, you know, give me a knife, I'll, I'll help out. You know, it's not, you. you just wait in the corridor drinking coffee. And there's this kind of expectation then that with mental health, it's like that. Oh, I'll hand my son or daughter over to clinicians. But the reality is that parents can do a lot um, themselves through family-based self-help. And the recovery is in many ways in the hands of the young person. So actually, one of the things I had to discover, um, and, and I knew it theoretically, but it's one thing knowing it theoretically, it's another thing actually knowing it practically, is that... M- Lizzie was the principal actor in her recovery. I I was just had a supporting role. And my role was to support her and encourage her uh, and uh, affirm her. Um, and, you know, particularly one of the things that eating disorders do, particularly anorexia, uh, is that they take aspects of your personality and they twist them round. It twists them round to be damaging. So Lizzie's always been very determined really really determined so what the eating disorder did was it twisted that around so she was very determined to lose weight to just lose as much weight uh, as possible uh, despite the hunger people think oh someone with anorexia doesn't feel hungry oh my goodness they do feel hungry they feel dreadfully hungry um, but they're trying to fight that with their determination and so part of my role as a dad was to help lizzie to see what had happened and to see look I still believe in you, Lizzie. Your determination is there, but that determination is actually harming you. And I want to support you and help you as you turn that determination back out again to be apply that determination to your recovery journey, to be determined to recover, to 
be able to ignore those anorexic voices in your head. And my role is to support her, encourage her, affirm her, help her to develop her self-efficacy to be able to overcome this. And I'll give you one little illustration. I had this kind of idea in my mind for when Lizzie was first ill that it was kind of like we were in a rowing boat, rowing up against a fast-flowing river to get Lizzie to a place called Lizzie's Well again. And I thought my job as the dad is to row us there and get us there. So I'll row as hard as I can. And then, of course, I look round and there's Lizzie rowing in the opposite direction. And so you become upset and angry. Suddenly, one day I had an insight, what psychologists call an aha moment. I suddenly realized I got the wrong goal. My goal should not be to try and get Lizzie up to the point where she's well again, because I can't do that. Only she can do that. My goal is to keep us all together in the boat. And as long as I can keep us all together in the boat, okay, if she's struggling for a while, we drift downstream for a while, then, okay, well, I'll be an anchor. I'll be an anchor to keep her safe, but I'm not the captain. She's the captain. And Lizzie recounting this, she she talks about it uh, in her book and she's talked about it on TV and things. She says, when I had that realization, she says, when my dad had that realization, um, he, he changed from leading me on to cheering me on. And that gave me the confidence that I could overcome this disorder and recover and get on with my life. That's a, an incredibly good metaphor with a, with, an, with a message that I think I'm going to take away and remember. That's a really good way to paint it. <laughs> there might be physician associates or PA students listening to this right now who might be suffering themselves from an eating disorder. They may be further down that journey in terms of in treatment and looking into recovery. It may be something that they're only just recognising in themselves or may not even know it themselves. And there may be somebody else concerned about them, about a peer or a colleague. That's a difficult conversation to have with somebody, isn't it? It is. Um, but it is important to have that conversation if we're concerned, because eating disorders thrive on secrecy. They're secretive illnesses and they thrive on secrecy. And so bringing it it out into the light, but in a way that is affirming and positive about them, that we're not blaming them. It's not their fault. They're not deciding to be difficult or anything like that. Um, that they're they're struggling with these with these thoughts and 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 these emotions turning into um, actions in terms of, of food. Um, so to be affirming and positive and and helpful to them is really important. And certainly in your professional clinical work, if a, if a patient opens up to you and tells you that they've got an eating disorder, you need to recognize that that's taken a huge amount of guts. They haven't done that lightly. It doesn't just trip off the tongue. They would have spent hours, days, weeks, even months gearing up for that moment where they're going to actually unveil that to a to a health professional. So to encourage them, they've had the, the, the guts to do that. You know, that is really important. The other thing I would say is, and you, you said it in your question about, you know, they might be at different stages. It can be very helpful to understand what's sometimes called the trans-theoretical model of change. 
there you go that's a nice bit of psychology for you uh, <laughs> uh with technical terms the trans theoretical model of change um it was really perhaps most known in relation to alcoholism but it does also apply to all sorts of mental health conditions that is the stages that people go through so five stages pre-contemplation not recognizing that i've got a problem not recognizing that this is an issue perhaps being aware of it and choosing to ignore it and choosing to keep it secret or perhaps really not being aware that it that it that it is an issue um contemplation is i'm aware of this but i just don't know what to do i i you know i don't want to kind of uh, uh deal with it um preparation the next stage is okay i am aware of it i do want to deal with it but i don't know what to do what do i do and certainly in the clinical world the first thing is to tell a clinician who can uh provide pathways to treatment and support in a personal way world it's talking to a friend talking to a family a, a member is the first uh step uh, of that preparation and then action is the things that one does to make progress on a recovery journey and the nice guidelines um uh, specify very clearly uh, uh, that self-help uh, should be a first-line treatment and is a very valuable aspect of treatment. And certainly those things that one can do for oneself using these evidence-based self-help techniques enables one to develop self-efficacy. If you're just just responding to a clinician then what happens when the clinician's not there but if you're learning to deal with the thoughts you're learning to deal with the uh, the habits and, and the emotions then actually you're developing that resilience and strength that will last you for life and then the last part of the trans theoretical model of change is called maintenance because a, a recovery journey is never straight and it's all over you actually go back and uh, have all sorts of relapses. So learning how to maintain that recovery. So it's important, I think, you know, when you're talking to clients uh, or, or patients or um, friends or family who are struggling with an eating disorder, just have a mind, you know, you can't say to them, oh, well, tell me where you are. Are you on pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, or uh, or maintenance? No, but but by asking questions, you can get a sense of it yourself and see how you can help them just on that next step. And that success for you as a friend or a clinician, maybe just moving them from pre-contemplation to contemplation. That, and, and that's a significant step in their recovery journey. Nick, thank you so much for giving up the time to talk to me about the e-learning for health uh, modules that you've created for eating disorders and promoting it to physician associates and for being so open and honest with your sort of experience uh, with your family um, as how eating disorders have, have played a part in the work you're doing now. Is there anywhere else you would point people to go to for further information about things that we've spoken about today? Well, on the Family Mental Wealth website, familymentalwealth.com, we've got all sorts of materials there. There is a uh, parent toolkit there with over a hundred short videos uh, for parents and carers and again the first part of that is free so dig around in the website there's 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 so much uh, that you'll find helpful there brilliant thank you 
And thanks to you for listening as well. I hope you found that an interesting and slightly different episode of the podcast to find out a bit more about this really important topic. I'll leave links in the show notes below and it'd be great to hear from you with any feedback. Please reach out to me on social media at PA Podcast UK and I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Precision Associate Podcast.